Take your Bibles this morning, the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 15. And if you're able to this morning, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word, the book of Mark, chapter number 15. Appreciate the song the Hall Sisters just sang, appreciate the choir special. Uh, Sometimes you wonder, uh, as I was preparing to preach for this morning, uh, I was actually looking at a different passage out of 1 Samuel, and God kept bringing me back to this passage. And so this morning we're going to preach about Calvary. I think there's, there's not a coincidence there, knowing the song that the Hall Sisters just sang, and then obviously the special, if you listen to the words of the choir. And uh, There's a statement Pastor made just a couple weeks ago. He said, you can't go wrong singing about Jesus. And you can't go wrong preaching about Jesus. And uh, so we're going to preach, Lord willing, this morning about Jesus. And uh, we'll see what God has for us. A little bit of a longer reading to start out the morning, and so I apologize for that, but kind of give you some, just some context and really kind of go back and expound a little bit. But we're going to begin reading this morning in Mark chapter number 15, and in verse number 16, the Bible says this, And the soldiers led him away into the hall, called Petroleum, and they called together the whole band, and they clothed him with purple, and plaited a crown of thorns, and put it about his head, and began to salute him, Hail! King of the Jews. He's speaking about Jesus Christ this morning. Verse 19, it says, And they smote him on the head with the reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, they worshipped him. Verse 20, When they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, and put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one, Simon of Cyrene, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him into the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he refused, sorry, he received it not. When they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the subscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Verse 29, and they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, ah, ha, ha, ha. It's in there. It might not be written in there, but it's in there, right? Ha, ha. Well, they said, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days. Save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. When the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. I want to draw your attention back to verse number 31. We're going to read this verse again and we'll come back to it and we'll visit it here. Again, but the Bible says this, Likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes. These are the religious leaders. These are the believers, if you want to say it like that. Here's what they said. He saved others. Himself, he cannot save. Lord willing, this morning I'm going to preach along this slot and this thought. The one that couldn't be saved. The one that couldn't be saved. Father, we thank you for the privilege it has been to be in your house. Lord, I thank you for the singing. Or just the message in the songs this morning has Lord, it's been such an encouragement. Lord, I'm thankful this morning that not only can we sing about you, but Lord, we now get the opportunity 
to preach about you. And Lord, I pray for this message. I know the context of it. I pray that you would help me to be clear in the presentation. Lord, I pray that you'd clear my mind. And Lord, that you would use me this morning for your honor and your glory. Lord, this is a very serious subject. And as we dive into this, it's going to get even more serious. And I pray this morning, God, if there is somebody here that does not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, maybe they've been fighting it, they've, they've been to church multiple times, or maybe they've grown up in church, they've been church their whole life. They've heard message after message after message after message about putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, yet they've rejected you every single time. Lord, I pray, God, I pray that you'd give some grace and some mercy in their life like you've done in time past, and again this morning, convict the Holy Spirit of God might convict and work in their hearts as only it can. Lord, we love you this morning. Looking forward to what you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> in our text this morning, we're at a very uh, serious juncture, if you would, and very serious point in the life of Christ that oftentimes we... Uh, just to be blunt, oftentimes we, we overlook or maybe we don't want to take it as, as, as serious as it needs to be. But if we could view Calvary this morning and we could view Calvary the day that we just read about in Mark chapter number 15, uh, 15 we would realize this morning it's not a very pretty sight. When you piece together all the accounts of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you combine those accounts together, and then not just the accounts of the four Gospels, but you take... Old Testament prophecy, and specifically the descriptions of what Jesus Christ was going to go through. And, and let's just be honest this morning, we don't have the time to go back, but even all the way back in the book of Genesis, chapter number 3, for those of you that are Bible students, you know that God had already promised and already committed that there would be somebody that would come one day down the line that would pay the sin debt, the sin that Adam and Eve, the disobedience against God, that God had already established the fact that Jesus Christ was going to come. But if you took all those accounts and all the all the, the, the Old Testament prophecies, you'd realize this, that the scene that we just read about in Mark chapter number 15 is an absolute horror. It's a scene that never, listen, to be honest, it, it never should have taken place in the context of what we just read. And what took place upon the cross of Calvary never really should have taken place. And then today, in our modern day, the cross has almost been made an object, if you would, of beauty. And we have crosses and and we want to glorify and beautify, if you would, the cross. But the truth is, this morning, is the cross is a very ugly place. The cross in Calvary in particular was a very repulsive place. And I believe this this morning, we have a society that has, uh, has watered down, if you would, the magnitude of what took place that day on Golgotha. A lot of times we look at Calvary and we think, man, Jesus died on Calvary, Jesus died on the cross. Man, it's, that's great. But what we often overlook is the, the ugliness of a crucifixion. We often overlook the disgustingness, if you would, of what Jesus went through. And we're going to get into that here in a second. But can I say this? Uh, uh, you know, we, we look sometimes at our Bible, and, and I've been guilty of this many occasions. And we look at, at our Bible, and we just read it just as a story. But this morning, we need to realize this isn't a story. This is truth. And what took place in Jesus' life and what He suffered for you and I, and what He, not just for you and I, but for all of mankind, is truth. And it's reality that took place. And so as you read our text this morning, we see this. We see, we see Jesus hanging upon a cross, and we see the magnitude of what He went through. Our Scripture reading this morning, we find Jesus in the, in the latter part of His earthly ministry, if you would. He, 
and he's done the miracles, he's, he's fed the 5,000, he's, he's, he's preached a sermon on the mount, he's raised Lazarus from the dead, he's walked on water, he done, he's done all those things, and he, he gets to the end of his life, and now we find it at the, at the pinnacle, if you would, of his earthly ministry. And we find here where it should be a time of great joy and great celebration and people and, and, and revival taking place within the nation of Israel. We find this ugly scene, if you would, of, of Jesus who had been falsely accused and who had, and we'll get into this, who had been mocked and ridiculed and beaten and whipped and all these travesties thrown against him. We find him hanging upon a cross and shedding his blood for you and I. Listen, I don't know about you, but man, there's something pretty gory about that. And, and, and we can't, listen, we can't look at a video or, 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 or look at a painting and really understand the context and the magnitude, if you would, of what Jesus went through to pay the sin debt of all mankind. Jesus, at this point in Mark chapter number 15, is fulfilling his purpose. He made this statement in Matthew chapter number 20, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. All the events that took place in Jesus' life, all the decisions that took place, all the miracles, all the preaching, everything that Jesus did on his earthly ministry led up to this one point right here, the cross of Calvary. The cross of Calvary. We know from Scripture that Christ, by this point in Mark chapter number 15, he'd already been betrayed by Judas. And uh, we're not going to try to, we're not going to go back, but I'll kind of bring us up to speed to where we're at, if you would. So just give me just a little bit of liberty as we build the case for the message this morning. But we know this, that Judas was one of the 12 disciples, and we know that the prior night before that Jesus had been in the upper room and administering the Lord's Supper and having the Last Supper with the disciples. And we know this, that Judas left, and Judas had betrayed Jesus. And we know that Jesus had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us that not only did he pray to God, but the Bible says that he sweat great drops of blood. And I was doing some research. I almost, Brother Mitch, I almost hollered at you last night because there's some medical terms I was looking at. I'm like, I don't know how to pronounce these. So I didn't add them to my notes. I have no idea. But I found article after article and medical doctor after medical doctor who has described that under a great extreme of stress and anxiety and just, just, just the weight of a stressful situation that the, the capillaries, if I read this right, in your, inside your sweat glands can burst and you can begin bleeding as you're sweating. And, and there's, there's documents, there's pictures, even, even within the last 10, 15 years of individuals who have been under extreme stress. And they, not only do they just sweat, but they sweat great drops of blood. And when I read this in my Bible and I think about all that my Savior did, all that He went through, all that He was willing to do for me and for you, man, I, I, I'm amazed at the fact that Jesus stuck it out, amen? I'm amazed at the fact that He was faithful to the end. I'm amazed at the fact that there are those that would look at what Jesus did for them and still say today, I don't want what He has to offer. But man, as Judas walks on up to Jesus, the Bible tells us this, that Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. <clears throat> The Pharisees and the Sadducees were there to round up Jesus. And Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest. And he's falsely accused of these crimes. And these religious leaders who ought to know the prophecy, they ought to know the scripture, they ought to know what's taking place. And he's accused of crimes that he did not commit. See, at one time, the office of the high priest had been the highest and holiest position in the country, in the nation of Israel. God had planned that since the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament. But at this point in time, at this point in Jesus' time, no longer was the office of the high priest really uh, a scriptural, in a sense, a, a, an office that was being fulfilled for scripture. No, no, no. It was a political position. A political position where somebody used their position as the high priest for political gain. Kind of sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Even in today's society. 
No, no, no. Here is somebody who's supposed to, listen, who's supposed to interpret the word of God, who's supposed, to, who's supposed to encourage the people of God to live for God, and instead their focus is on themselves and is on their financial gain and the relationship that they have and how they can manipulate, listen, manipulate the people, the nation of Israel, to, to work with uh, the Romans and, and to be able to play both sides of the fence, if you would. And we don't have time to look at it, but Caiaphas was definitely not a godly man. He was definitely not a spiritual man. He def- listen, he definitely wasn't a good representation of the high priest. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But here Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin and the high priest, and he's falsely accused of things in his life and in his ministry. These proceedings took place after, obviously, Christ had been arrested illegally, and they were totally illegal. They were done at night. Jewish custom, Jewish custom had set parameters of when a legal proceeding was to take place, not just from a legal standpoint, but also from a spiritual standpoint where it involved the high priest and the Sanhedrin. So here's what they did. They accused Jesus, and as they accused Jesus, they accused him with false information. You say, why is that such a big deal, Brother Andrew? Because I found this in studying for this. It says this, in Jewish customs and Jewish law, the well-established precedent in a capital case, a capital case that involved, listen, that involved uh, putting someone to death, a capital case that involved basically putting someone to death. Among the Jews, the Jews were first to look for evidence that would acquit the accused. They were to look for evidence that would basically demonstrate that the person who's being accused was innocent. And you all thought that innocent until proven guilty was something we just came up with in America. No, no, no. This has been around for decades, for years, for millennia. The fact of the matter was the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas as the high priest was to present evidence that proved Jesus' innocence, but in reality, the exact opposite took place. And everybody that came to Jesus, uh, came to testify, lied and had false accusations. The night proceedings carried on throughout the night, and standing before the religious leaders of that day, Jesus began at that point to be physically harmed. He was struck, he was blindfolded, he was mocked by the soldiers and by those that were within that court. In the early morning, before we get into Mark chapter number 15, Jesus, being battered and bruised, dehydrated, without sleep, without food, is taken across Jerusalem. And in our text this morning, we read that he's, he's taken over to the praetorium, or the fortress, if you would, where Pontius Pilate dwells. And where Pontius Pilate is ruling and reigning as the tetrarch, if you would, of, of Judah and of Israel. And so here he comes before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate deals with them and, 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 and tries to, if you would, with kid gloves, deal with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and tries to deal with kid gloves, if you would, with the religious leaders of the day. But in dealing with them, they basically are hard set on the fact that Jesus needs to die. No, no, you don't understand, Pilate. You don't understand. Uh, it's not about the innocence of this man. We just, we just want him gone. We want him gone. You say, why, why, would, why would the Sanhedrin, why would the religious leaders of the day want God's son killed or removed from the, from the equation, if you would? Can I say it like this? Because he was truth personified. He was truth personified. You say, what do you mean by that, Brother Andrew? Everything that Jesus said was, number one, truth. Truth, okay? And number two, went absolutely against everything the Sadducees and the Pharisees were saying. So, of course, of course, here's what starts to happen. Their, their little pockets start, something starts happening with their pocketbook. And they're not happy anymore because Jesus begins to have a following. No, no, no. 
He has his 12 disciples. He has, if you would, his inner disciples, his inner circle. But the Bible tells us, we don't have time to go look at it, but you can search the Gospels, that there were scores of people, scores of people that would follow Jesus around. Scores of people that would follow Jesus around. I don't, find in, I don't find in Scripture where Jesus is running into the Pharisees and the Sadducees and there's scores of people listening to their messages. I don't find that. No, no, I find the exact opposite. I find Jesus preaching and teaching scores of people and then the Sadducees and the Pharisees show on up going, what is this? Man, why can't I have 5,000? Why can't I have 10,000? Man, why can't I sit in a boat and preach and all these people look up at me and go, man, that's good, yeah. Why can't I? No, no. There is, a, there, is a, there is a ungodly jealousy that takes place in their life. And so when Jesus is presented before Pontius Pilate, innocent of all charges, innocent of all charges, Pilate says, hey, listen, guys, he, I, I find no fault. I see no fault. He's, got, he's innocent. Here's, here's their mindset. He's guilty. I don't care. He's guilty. He's guilty. He's guilty. He's guilty. So here's what takes place. Pilate succumbs to the mob. Gives into the Sanhedrin, gives into the high priest Caiaphas. And Jesus is then taken, he's taken within the inner court, if you would, of Pontius Pilate's realm. And Jesus begins to be prepared, and he's, there's preparation that takes place for Jesus to go through the process of a crucifixion. Jesus' scourging was carried out at Caesar's orders. The prisoner was stripped of his clothes. And his hands were tied to a, boat, a post above his head. The Roman legionnaire stepped forward with the flagrum, or many of what we know nowadays we'll call the cat of nine tails. And it was a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thonged straps with balls of lead attached at the end of these straps. Within these balls of lead are nails and jagged sheep bones. One commentator I was reading as I was studying for this said that a lot of times that the Roman centurions would dip the whip in sheep's blood to increase the infection and the pain that went into an individual as they whipped them. Within these balls were these jagged rocks, and the whip would be brought down with heavy force against the back, the shoulders, and the legs. At first, the weighted cuts, uh, the throngs from the leather straps, and the, the nail and the bone uh, encased balls would, would just cut the skin. Just kind of cut the skin and mark it up, and, and blood began to oozing. But then as the blows continued, they cut deeper. They cut deeper into the back and the tissue of our Lord and Savior. This produced an oozing of blood from the capillaries and the veins of the skin. And finally, arterial bleeding from vessels and the underlining muscles. I was reading an article by a doctor that he wrote back in 1965, and here's what he had to say about Jesus' scourging. He said, The small balls of lead first produced large, deep bruises that were broken open, by subsequent blows. But then finally, the skin of the back was hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area was an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. It is not known whether the number of the lashes given Jesus at this time was limited to 39 in accordance with Jewish law. There is no evidence that the Romans had any set limit to how many lashes they gave. Some of the commentators have said that most times, Romans gave lashes until somebody would tell the truth. So somebody was willing to say, okay, I, I lied. And of course, Jesus opened not his mouth. The more facts one learns about Roman scourging, the more easily it is to see that Jesus was not exaggerating when he predicted that his blood would be poured out, that he would shed his blood for the remission of sin. The half-fainted Jesus was then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement wet with his own blood. 
The Roman soldiers saw a great joke in the provincial Jew claiming to be a king, and they threw a robe across his shoulders and placed a stick in his hand as a scepter. They still needed a crown to make their travesty complete, so they grabbed some small flexible branches covered with long thorns, commonly used for kindling fires in the bazaars in the courtyard. And they planted him on the shape of a, they plated him in the shape of a crude crown and placed the crown and pressed it into Jesus' skull. And again, bleeding took place within his face and his body. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers took, took the stick from his hand and struck him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tired of their sadistic sport and tore the robe from his back. The robe had already become adherent to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds. And its removal, just as in the careless removal of a surgical bandage, caused excruciating pain. The wounds, again, began to bleed. Indifference to Jewish custom, the Romans apparently returned his garments. We read that in our text this morning. And the heavy cross, heavy top of the cross was tied across his shoulders, and he was told to proceed to Golgotha. Historians tell us that the trip from where he was at, inside Pilate's court there where he was scourged, was about a 650-yard journey. But the Bible tells us in our text this morning, in, in verse number 21, that Jesus couldn't quite make it all the way. No, 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 couldn't quite make it all the way. Now, a lot of times we look at that and we think, man, uh, why not? Like I say this, he's all God, but he's all man. And I don't know about you, but, you know, us guys, man, we, try, we, we, we think we're pretty strong. We try to think we're pretty manly. Right, Brother Joe? I mean, we're, 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 man, we're, man I, I can handle this. Man, we, we, we think we're pretty strong. We're pretty manly. I was moving some, some tubes of sand this last week, and, and Emily, my daughter, was helping me, and, and she was moving one, I was moving another, and, you know, it was a 70-pound bag of sand, Brother Joe, and she's carrying it like no, nobody's business. And I'm like, I can't let her outdo her dad. Man, so Brother John, I took, both, I took two bags. I took two bags. And she comes walking up the steps in the backyard, and she's like, Dad, I could have got that. I said, no, you can't. I got this. No, 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 no. We, we try to think that, man, we're strong, we're powerful. And as soon as I set them down, it's like, oh, yeah, you're good. Next time you can get the other one. Oh, no. The, the weight, the pain, the scourging, the, the, the physical ailment, if you would. No, no, this wasn't something where Jesus was just walking down like in chains, Brother John, just kind of casually going to Golgotha. No, 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 no. Well, we don't have time to look at it this morning, but, but Jesus, the Scripture tells us Jesus was unrecognizable. Was unrecognizable. I can only imagine the look on his face. I can only imagine the, his body and, and, and the blood that was streaming down the streets. I mean, here you have the, the two thieves, the, the other two uh, thieves that would be crucified with Jesus, walking with him, and here comes Jesus, and, and he's just, just a pile of mess. His back and his shoulders and his legs just totally ripped apart. Ripped apart. So he goes to Golgotha, and as he gets to Golgotha, we know this, that Simon carries the bulk of the, the cross and lays it down. Once he gets to Golgotha, here's what takes place. Jesus is nailed to a cross. Jesus is crucified for all of mankind. Somebody may be thinking this morning, man, why did Jesus die such a horrible death? Why did He have to suffer like He did? The truth is this, that in Calvary, in the cross of Calvary, in Golgotha's hill, God was revealing His great hatred and wrath over man's sin, all the while demonstrating His great love for mankind. You ever thought about that? That in the picture of Calvary, Brother Charles, in the picture of Calvary, in the cross of Calvary, God is displaying His great hatred 
for the sin of mankind. You say, what sin, Brother Andrew? The sin that started back in Genesis chapter number 3 with the disobedience of Adam and Eve. The sin that was passed down from generation to generation all the way to 2021. Listen, God at Calvary, God was saying, I I can't stand man's sin. There's an objection to that. That, That's unrighteous. I can't deal with that. I can't have fellowship with that. But at the same time, God was showing his great love for mankind by saying, man, I can't deal with that, but I have a son who can. I have a son who can pay the price of sin's debt. Listen, this morning... We may be thinking this morning, man, why, why would Jesus do that? Can I say this this morning? Here's why Jesus would do it, because he loves you. Because he loves you. Most of us in here this morning, we're, we're, we're parents. We have kids. I, I got five kids. Man, I'd do anything in the world for my kids. Anything in the world for my kids. Brother JT, would you do anything in the world for your daughter? Absolutely. Absolutely. Brother Mike? Brother Chris? Yeah, amen. We would do anything in the world for our child. We'd do anything in the world for our child. Listen, can I say this? I'm thankful this morning that God in heaven was willing to do anything for me. I'm thankful this morning that God in heaven was willing to do anything for you. Say, what did he do, Brother Andrew? He sent his son to the cross of Calvary to pay your sin debt and to pay my sin debt and to pay the sin debt, listen, of all mankind. Man, what a thought. But it wasn't just the fact that he just hung there. It wasn't the fact that he was just nailed to the cross it wasn't the fact that he just was pierced on side. No, no. There was a lot that went into Jesus Christ's death. A lot more than I think that we even sometimes could possibly imagine. But I want to draw your attention this morning real quickly to one verse this morning. It's kind of, as I've read and as studied and looked at it, it's kind of just stuck on out. Look at verse number 31. In verse number 31, the Bible tells us this, Likewise also, the chief priest those religious leaders, if you would, those that would know the Scriptures, those, listen, can I say it like this, those that you think would have a walk with God? Here's what the Bible says. Mocking said among themselves with the scribes, he saved others, himself he cannot save. I want to look at a couple of things this morning. The first thing I want to look at is the first part of their statement. He saved others. You see, the priests didn't realize it that day, but in reality, they were admitting to the fact of Jesus Christ's deity. They were admitting to the fact that as they made that statement, yes, we know he's innocent. Yes, we know he's not guilty of those charges that we said. And at the same time, we know that he saved others. Give me some examples. Absolutely. The Gospels are filled with stories of where Jesus saved those that were sick and those that were uh, diseased. In Mark chapter number 10, the Bible tells us of the blind man, uh, Bartimaeus, who was given back his sight. In Matthew chapter number 9, the, the Bible tells us of uh, the lame man who was, who was lame because of a palsy. In Luke chapter number 17, the Bible tells us not only of one leper, but of ten lepers that Jesus healed. Listen, I, I'm thankful this morning that Jesus Christ, uh, that he saved those that had the diseases. But it wasn't just those that had disease. Uh, There was those that even were possessed with demons that Jesus was able to reach. We think about the maniac of Gadara as Jesus dealt with him. And the Bible tells us in John chapter number 11 that after meeting Jesus and after getting salvation and after realizing what all that God, listen, all that God could do for him, the Bible describes him as this, clothed and in his right mind. But it wasn't just the fact that Jesus could perform miracles at people that were there. But we think about Lazarus. I mean, the the fact that Lazarus had been dead, not just one day, not just two days, Brother John, but three days. 
and Jesus basically showing up and calling Lazarus from the grave. There was, listen, there was no magic. There was no hocus pocus. There was no anything that took place in the tomb. The Bible basically tells us that Jesus stood outside the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. Guess what came out of that tomb? Lazarus. And Jesus, Jesus did all those things. So here as the, as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the scribes and the priests are mocking him, saying, listen, he saved others. Absolutely right, he saved others. He absolutely did. And can I tell you this morning that the greatest thing, the greatest thing that Jesus saved people from was not disease. It was not demons. It was not even necessarily death. But the greatest thing that Jesus saved people from was from their sins. See, the fact of the matter is, the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. So what do you mean? What, what, what's sin, Brother Andrew? Uh, the best way I can describe sin is this. Anything you and I do that goes against a holy and a righteous God. So is like lying a sin? Absolutely. Brother Andrew, is, is murder a sin? Absolutely. Is adultery a sin? Absolutely. Is cheating, stealing? Those are all sins. Absolutely. No, no, I, I'm thankful this morning that when, 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 when God was... When God was looking down at me back in June of 1991 as, as a seven-year-old young man at West Charleston Baptist Church, man, I, I'm thankful that when God looked at me, he wasn't looking at, at the fact that I was a, necessarily a sinner and, and some wicked, vile, uh, horrible sin. No, no. He was looking at me as an individual who had no knowledge of Jesus Christ. And God said this, man, Andrew, I loved you so much that I sent my son to die for your sin. The sin that you have committed, the sin that you will commit, the sin that you think you would, you would never do. Man, I sent my son to die on the cross for that sin. We've all sinned this morning. We don't like to admit it. We don't like to... I asked, I asked the teenagers this morning, I said, who in, in Sunday school, I said, who in here likes to be told they're wrong? Not one hand got raised. Parents, you're forewarned. <laughs> not, not one hand. Listen, even my girls, my two girls, like to be told you're wrong? Not one hand. And I was like, nope, not right. No, no one likes to be told they're wrong, Brother Jake. Hey, hey, listen, can I say it like this? No one likes to be told that they're a sinner, but God did. Romans 3.20, all have sinned. So John, no one can escape the fact that you're a sinner. You're a sinner. No matter how pretty you look on the outside, no matter how well you clean up, no matter how well you smell, it don't matter. You're a sinner. Listen, I, I, love, I love Levi. I love the age he's at, four years old, five years old. He says some of the craziest things. He's got such a great personality. And as cute as he is, he is a wicked sinner. Straight up, straight up wicked sinner. I think sometimes we miss the fact that Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross so that we could be healed from our diseases. I think sometimes we miss the fact that Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross so we could have money in the checking account or in the savings account. I think sometimes we miss the fact that Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross so that we could go to Him in prayer and say, God, I really need this, and I need this, and I need this, and He'd just answer it. I think sometimes we miss the fact that Jesus Christ went to the cross because of our sin. He did save others. He did save others. And on June 10th, 1991, He saved me. What a thought to think this morning. That God, listen, God didn't save me because I'm special, Brother Mike. God didn't save me because He knew one day I'd be Levi's dad. You know why God saved me? Because I'm a sinner. If you know Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior this morning, God saved you 
Because you are a sinner in need of a Savior. You say, well, I, I've, never, I've never put my faith and trust in Christ. Can I say it like this? God will save you because you're a sinner. But at the same time, you can reject Christ. You can tell God, God, I, I know, Jesus, I know you did all those things for me. But man, I don't want that. You see, in each and every case, Jesus dealt with not only the physical needs of those that he healed and brought back from the dead, but ultimately Jesus dealt with their spiritual needs. Our greatest need is not physical. Our greatest need is not financial. Our greatest need is not emotional. Can I say this morning, our greatest need is spiritual. And I I found in my own life, in the few short years that I've lived on this planet, that many of my problems stem not from a financial or an emotional or a mental or a physical issue. They stem from a spiritual problem. And the spiritual problem is this. I need more of Jesus Christ. I need more of what He has for me. The chief priest said, He saved others. Now watch what they said here, the second part of this, this verse. Look at verse 31. Here's the second part. It says, Likewise also the chief priests mocking and said amongst themselves with the scribes, He saved others. Himself, He cannot save. They were exactly right in the first part of the statement, but can I make a bold statement this morning? They were completely wrong in the second. You see, Jesus could have saved himself from the situation on the cross. He didn't have to stay there. He didn't have to submit himself to the ridicule. He didn't have to submit himself to the shame or to the pain. But no, the Bible says that even before he reached the cross of Calvary, he could have saved himself. Going back to the Garden of Gethsemane and as the the scribes and as Judas comes to betray Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that Judas betrayed Christ with a kiss. And as the scribes and the Pharisees and the the military men, if you would close in on Jesus, that Peter takes his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. Jesus, we know, performs basically his his last miracle right there and takes the ear and puts it back on Malchus' head. And here's the statement he makes to Peter. I'm going to paraphrase here. He says this, Peter, what are you doing? Put Put your sword away. Don't you realize I could, I could just ask my father and he'd send 10,000 angels just like that? But even more powerful than that is the fact that Jesus was the son of God, brother Jake. He had the same power God in heaven had. No, 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 no. Sometimes we have this mindset like, uh, like, like Jesus was down here and God's up here. No, 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 no. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And so Jesus had the ability, he had the power, he had, he had all the power he needed to step down from that cross. We know this, that Jesus had not only the power to step down from the cross, but we know this, that Jesus had the power to basically do away with Calvary altogether. He simply could have called uh, legions of angels from heaven and totally destroyed everything that was taking place and wiped man off the face of this earth. But instead, he didn't. He stayed on that cross. And as he hung upon that cross, look what the Bible says in our text, he faced ridicule. He faced mockery. Even after all that he went through, he still hung upon the cross without a word in retribution to those that mocked him. They said he saved others, but he can't save himself. Well, the fact is, this morning, he could have saved himself. So it begs us to ask the question, why didn't he? Brother Mike, why? If Jesus could have saved himself, if Jesus had all power, just like God the Father, if Jesus could have done anything he wanted to do, listen, if Jesus... uh, Man, I've never seen somebody lose an ear and then somebody just pick it up and put it back on their head and be good to go. I've never seen that. Never seen that. You talk about something, you'd be like, hallelujah, I want to be around that a little bit more. Amen? Absolutely. I've never seen that. 
I mean, if he had all that kind of power, why did he not just come down off the cross? Why did he not just step away and go, you know what? I don't have to put up with this. I don't have to put up this. Hey, listen, I've been there from the beginning. John 1.1. Jesus could have very well just stepped on down and said, hey, Caiaphas, you want to take my place? You can hang on the cross. You need, you need to get out of here. No, no, that wasn't Jesus' response. Look what our text says here this morning. Verse 32, And let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. They were mocking Christ and said, listen, we want to see and believe. I mean, they just made the statement that He saved others. He, they just made the statement. We, we've seen the lepers that are healed. We've seen the lame men beside the pool of Bethesda. We, we, we've heard the stories of Lazarus. We've heard the stories of feeding of the 5,000. We've seen all these things that have taken place, Jesus. But here's, how we're, here's where we'll believe. You just step down off that cross. You just come off that cross. Then we'll believe. Then we'll believe. Can I say this this morning? That Not only is that a mockery, but a lot of times that's where people are today when it comes to salvation. So what do you mean, Brother Andrew? They look at God like this or look at Jesus like this. Well, Jesus, if you just do this for me, then I'll give you my life. Listen, God, if you just do this for me and, and, and fill in the blank and, and do what I want you to do, then I'll give you my life. And I'm thankful this morning that Jesus didn't give in to the mockery. I'm thankful this morning Jesus didn't give in to uh, what was being said by the religious leaders of the day. Why didn't Jesus just come down off the cross? I'm going to say this in a very simple, simple statement. The reason is because if Jesus had saved Himself, then He could not have saved you and I. Why don't you think about that for a second? If Jesus had saved Himself, He could not have saved you and I. From the beginning of time, in Genesis chapter number 3, there was a blood atonement that had to be paid for the sin of mankind. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we know that there was a blood sacrifice, or a blood sacrifice that had been made for their sin. So we know that from the beginning of time, God's plan had always been a blood sacrifice. But there was one problem. One problem. God needed a complete, holy, righteous, no sin type sacrifice. So throughout the years of our Bible reading, and even in today, there's only been one person who has fit that bill, and that was Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Listen, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how many good things you are. It doesn't matter what kind of life you've lived. It doesn't matter what kind of money you give to the church or to charities or ministries or anything else. Can I say this? There's only one person that has ever been qualified to pay my sin debt, and that was Jesus Christ. Listen, I, 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 hey, listen, I, I'm thankful, I'm thankful, I'm thankful that when sometimes you go out with somebody and somebody says, hey, I want to buy you a meal. Amen, Abram? You know, it's like, yeah. hey, hey, Abram, let's go, let's go grab some lunch. Okay, sounds good. And, and Brother Andrew buys Abram tacos. Abram's like, hallelujah, yes. No, 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 I'm thankful for that. No, no, I'm thankful that there's times where people can be a blessing to me and, and my family. I'm thankful for that. And I, listen, I appreciate that. And, and, and I appreciate being able to do that for other people. I'm not trying to uh, be mean to, hey, I love being able to be a blessing to our teenagers. And, and I love being able to do those things, Brother Jake. But can I say this? I, I can't walk up to Brother Jake and say, hey, Brother Jake, I want to pay your sin debt. No, no, I can't do that. Uh, Brother Butch, you can't walk up and go, hey, Brother Andrew, I want to pay your sin debt. You can't. I can't. But there is one who can. His name is Jesus Christ. And you and I can spend a lifetime, a lifetime trying to attain perfection, and we'll spend a lifetime absolutely miserable because we're never going to hit it. 
There is one person and one person alone who can pay your sin debt. His name is Jesus Christ. And so here Jesus is. He's hanging on the cross. He's been scourged. He's been whipped. He's been mocked. And some ask this question, why would Jesus not save Himself? Simply put, because Jesus wanted to save you. Listen, tonight, Riverside Baptist, sorry, this morning, Riverside Baptist Church can't save you. Can't. Pastor Marshall can't save you. Brother Andrew can't save you. Brother John, you can't save anybody. Brother Mike, Miss Tammy, you guys can't save anybody. But Jesus Christ can. And I'm thankful this morning that when I look at the cross of Calvary, here's what I see. I see it vile. I see it disgusting. I see horror. I just see an absolute atrocity that takes place from a human perspective. But I also see God's perspective. Because if you keep reading on in verse number 34, here's what Jesus says. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here's the pinnacle, if you would, Corbin, of God's love. All my sin, all your sin, all the sin of mankind is taken and laid upon Jesus Christ. And God, listen, God who had a, had a, a love and a relationship and just a father's love with his son, turns his back on his son. Listen, not because, not because of his son's sin, but because of my sin. I don't know about you, but I don't know any greater picture of love. A lot of times we talk about God's love and the love of God, and man, it's real, and it's awesome. And the love of a father, man, I, I love my kids. I asked Brother JT, do you anything for He's like, yep, he didn't even skip a beat. <laughs> Brother JT loves his kids. Brother John, I believe, loves, loves his kids. As a parent, we love our kids. But man, sometimes we miss out on the love of God. We miss out and we think, man, you know, God, God, he's just so much love, so much love, so much love, so much love. And we miss out on the fact that in that statement right there is the love of Christ. That he would take your sin and my sin and the sin of somebody who wants nothing to do with him and say these words, I'll still take it. Brother Doug, I'll still hang on that cross. I'll still, I'll still bear those marks. I'll take that scourging. I'll take that beating. I'll take that mockery because I love them. Remember, Mike, I'm thankful for God's love. But when I read Mark chapter 15, I'm thankful for a Savior's love who in spite of my shortcomings, Brother Jeremiah, in spite of my own sin, says, I love you. I'm going to take it. Listen, this morning, you can spend a lifetime you can spend a lifetime trying to be religious, trying to have a walk with God, trying to be spiritual, all those things. But here's what you need to spend a lifetime realizing and living. A personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question this morning. We're done. Have you ever put your faith and trust in Jesus? Well, you know, I, I, you know God, God saved me from this. No, 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 no. Have you ever gotten to the point to where you realize, number one, you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Number two, that Jesus Christ, that God in heaven loved you so much, John 3.16, that
that Jesus Christ bore your sin on the cross of Calvary. Number three, have you ever forsaken your sin? So what do you mean by that, Brother Andrew? Confess to the holy, righteous God. God, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God, I need to turn from this. I need to repent of the sin that's in my life. Have you ever called upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If not, if not, you're missing out. There's one person Jesus couldn't save that day, and that was Himself. You know why He couldn't save Himself? Because He was busy saving me, Miss Mary. He was busy saving me. Father, we thank You for this morning, Lord. And Lord, I do want to thank You for Your love. And what a thought this morning to think of what Jesus Christ went through on the cross of Calvary. And Lord, I know I gave testimony a little bit ago of being saved since June 10th, 1991, but I'll be honest, Lord, I know I haven't loved You like I've ought to all these years. And Lord, sometimes even when I think about the day I got saved and my salvation, my relationship with You, it, Lord, it's not just as passionate as it should be and almost kind of just get cold and accustomed to it. Lord, I pray this morning, God, first of all, if there's somebody here that has not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they'd realize this morning that Jesus loved them so much that He was willing not only to suffer physically, but that He was willing to take their sin upon Him. For that separation to take place between Him and His Father because of not His sin, but because of their sin, because of my sin. Because of the sin of all mankind. And then Lord, I want to pray for those this morning that know for sure they're saved. Lord, they know for sure beyond a shadow of a doubt. They can go back to a date or a time or a situation, whatever the case might be. And they can can go back to a point in their life where they know for sure beyond a shadow of a doubt. They put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But Lord, maybe this morning their salvation just isn't as strong in the sense of, it's not as fresh. Oh, Lord, I heard preachers years ago Preachers years ago preach about how when we walk away from the joy of our salvation, walk away and we forget, we forget all that Jesus Christ did for us. Lord, what a shame. What a shame to come to church and have no joy, no passion, no drive to live for you because our salvation is just, we're, we're saved, we're born again, we're on our way to heaven. Jesus Christ, our Savior, that's all good. Lord, I pray this morning that we would just be challenged We're challenged by the love of Christ on Golgotha's hill. As we stand this morning, the piano is going to begin to play, and Brother Cole is going to sing the invitation song. Let's do business with God this morning. Just as I am with Let me challenge you this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, why not? What more does Jesus have to do for you before you put your faith and trust in Him? What more does he need to do? He's done it all. He's done it all. All you got to do is admit, repent, put your faith and trust in him.